Typically at GCF, we preach through books of the Bible. That's called consecutive exposition. We were in the Gospel of John for roughly a year and a half. We'll go back to John chapter 17, Lord willing, in a few weeks. But where have we been so far in the series? First sermon was, was on biblical marriage. And then we talked about the Bible's perspective on singleness. And then we talked about masculinity, then femininity. This morning uh, is an overview of biblical sexuality. And then we'll talk about transgenderism next week, homosexuality for two weeks after that, and then pornography, and then back to the Gospel of John. Actually, in two weeks, uh, we're going to take a break, and there'll be a sermon uh, on Reformation Sunday uh, celebrating our Reformed heritage. So it'll be, there'll, there'll be a little, a little bit of breathing room from this very non-controversial sermon series in a couple of weeks. Well, let's pray once again as we dive into this morning's topic Father, we are so thankful for giving us so much clarity about sexuality. The world is so confused on this issue, and the scriptures are so clear and so life-giving. Father, I pray that this morning, as the word is preached, as we talk about this important aspect of our lives, that you would be glorified and that people would be able to apply the gospel to this specific area of our lives. Father, guard my lips. Have me only say what you want me to say and help me say it in a way, in a tone that honors you. And we pray all these things in Jesus' mighty name. Amen. Our, our culture currently believes that sex is nothing and sex is everything. What do I mean by that? Our culture believes right now that sex is nothing. It's merely a physical act. It's simply an instinct, like the instinct to eat food, scratch an itch, or drink water. Furthermore, porn, a $90 billion a year industry, is everywhere, and most folks think that porn is no big deal. It's just, just looking at pictures. Furthermore, most singles these days expect to have sex at least after the first date, surely after the second date. Again, in our culture, sex is nothing. At the same time, we believe that sex is everything. Our culture tells us that if we're not having great sex all the time, how could we possibly go on living? In addition, if we can't express our sexuality however we want and with whoever we want, then how in the world can we be fully human since sexuality is now the chief identity marker? Furthermore, since sex is everything, sex is used to sell everything from cotton balls to beer to carburetors. The sex is everything and sex is nothing mentality is wreaking havoc on our culture right now and leading to all kinds of heartache and pain. And maybe you're here this morning and you've experienced some of that significant heartache and pain due to the brokenness caused by our culture's perspective on sexuality. There must be a better way. And there is a better way. There's the Bible's way. Contrary to popular belief, the Bible is actually very, very keen on sex. God invented sex. It was his idea. So what does the Bible say about sexuality? A lot. I'm, I'm going to cover three things this morning. The Bible uh, talks about the creation of sex, the destruction of sex, and the redemption of sex. 
the creation of sex, the destruction of sex, and the redemption of sex. First, the creation of sex. We can never forget that God created sex. It was his idea, and he created it for several reasons. Like what? Let me list several of those reasons that God created sex. First and foremost, God created sex for procreation. Listen as I read from Genesis 1.28, which we've talked a lot about in this series because it's so foundational for these topics. Genesis 1.28, and God blessed them, and God said to them, be fruitful and multiply, and fill the earth and subdue it, and have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens, and over every living thing that moves on the earth. God commanded Adam and Eve to be fruitful and multiply so that they could fill the entire planet with little image bearers of God who would grow up hopefully to glorify God. Now, God could have very, very easily designed the reproduction of human beings to be a very non-pleasurable experience. And he could have commanded us to create human beings without any pleasure at all, but on the contrary, God created sex to be a very enjoyable experience, which seems to indicate that God wants us to have lots of sex because God wants lots of image bearers created to glorify him on planet Earth. Well, Dave, how many kids should we have? A lot. How many is that? I don't know, pray. But five is the ideal number. I'm just saying. <laughs> That's somewhere in Second Hesitations 3 verse 1. But this raises a serious question. Do you share God's perspective on children? Kids are a blessing. And the fact that God made sex so enjoyable seems to indicate that God wants us to have lots of kids for his glory. So God created sex for procreation. In addition, God created sex for pleasure for procreation, and also for pleasure. How do we know? God is the one who designed all of your sex organs and nerve endings. Furthermore, the Bible contains an entire book that celebrates the joy of sexuality in the context of marriage, the Song of Songs. By the way, one of my favorite books on marriage and sexuality is in our bookstore. No one ever takes me up on this. It's a great book. It's um, a collection of sermons by a guy named Ian Duguid. And he gave those sermons to his church, mostly college students in Pennsylvania many years ago. But it's just, it's, uh, it's, it's called the Reformed Expository Commentary on Song of Songs in the bookstore. It's a great book on sexuality and marriage, one of my favorites. Someone needs to buy it or I'll feel like a failure as a book promoter this morning. But God created sex for pleasure and the Song of Songs makes that abundantly clear. Furthermore, the book of Proverbs extols sexuality in the context of marriage. Consider these provocative verses. Proverbs 5, I'm going to read from verse 18 to 19. Verse 18, let your fountain be blessed and rejoice in the wife of your youth. A lovely deer, a graceful doe, let her breast fill you at all times with delight and be intoxicated always in her love. In this passage, a father is instructing a young man, his son, to avoid sexual sin by taking great delight and joy in the breasts of his wife. So breasts are more, created for more than making milk. They're created by God for husbands to enjoy. This is the perspective of Holy Scripture. And then he tells this young man to be intoxicated or to be drunk with love as he is making love to his wife. The Bible is not a book for the prude. 
And the expression in these verses, at all times and always, in verse 19, implies that sexual intimacy should be a joyful experience for married couples well into old age. Sexual pleasure was designed by God for the glory of God. One scholar says this, sexual stimulation, the sexual climax, and sexual fulfillment are God's gracious gifts for humanity to be gratefully enjoyed without shame, guilt, or fear. Within the marriage bond, sex becomes the ultimate physical expression of deep, committed, and devoted love. Therefore, it's not surprising that all the studies indicate that Christian couples have the best sex and the most frequent sex. Consider one scholar who says this. Another study concluded, when it comes to relationship quality in heterosexual relationships, highly religious couples enjoy higher quality relationships and more sexual satisfaction compared to less mixed religious couples and secular couples. The National Health and Social Life Survey, the most detailed analysis of sexual behavior in America, found that people in intact marriages who worship weekly were most likely to report feeling wanted and needed during intercourse, 94.9%. Yet how often does Hollywood or television feature married religious couples enjoying a happy, sexually vibrant relationship? How often do sex education courses teach young people that if they want a fulfilling sex life, they should get married and go to church. But that's true. Another scholar says this. University of Chicago study found that religious people who are married have the best sex lives. They engage in sex more frequently, find it more satisfying and fun, and have the longest lived sex lives. The study found that conservative evangelical Protestant women reported the most satisfying sex and the most orgasms. This is God's design in the context of marriage. This is proof, by the way, that the Christian worldview is true. When you do things God's way, when you do things Scripture's way, it leads to joy and flourishing. Proof that the Christian worldview is true. It works. Application. Give thanks and rejoice. One scholar says this, the reason that sex is fun, pleasurable, and wonderful is because it's a reflection of the loving goodness of God who created as a gift for us to steward and enjoy. This implies that loving marital sex is not gross, dirty, or shameful. If you've experienced sexual pleasure, give thanks to God. This is his gift to you to be enjoyed for his glory. God created sex for procreation. God created sex for pleasure. In addition, God created sex for permanence, i.e. bonding. What do I mean? Genesis 2, 21 to 24. So the Lord God caused a deep sleep to fall upon the man, and while he slept, took one of his ribs and closed up its place with flesh. And the rib that the Lord God had taken from the man, he made into a woman and brought her to the man. Then the man said, this at last is bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman because she was taken out of man. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife and they shall become one flesh. Moses explains that the sexual union between a man and a woman leads to a one flesh reality. What does this mean? 
This means that sex is more than merely a physical thing or like an itch to be scratched. Well, how do we know? The Apostle Paul elaborates on this in 1 Corinthians 6, verses 16 to 18. He writes this, Or do you not know that he who is joined to a prostitute becomes one body with her? For as it is written, the two will become one flesh. But he who is joined to the Lord becomes one spirit with him. Flee from sexual immorality. Every other sin a person commits is outside the body, but the sexually immoral person sins against his own body. Clearly, one flesh refers to more than a physical act. Otherwise, Paul would be guilty of a tautology. A tautology is saying the same thing in a row like this, for instance. Paul's not saying, don't you know that having a physical union with a prostitute means you're having a physical union with a prostitute? That's a tautology. That's not what he's saying. Rather, what Paul is saying is this. Don't you know that having sex with a prostitute creates a deep bond with that prostitute? Then he compares that bond with the bond that believers have with Christ. What's he implying? He's implying that the bond that happens during sex is something powerful, mysterious, profound, and spiritual. And that's because God designed sex to bond two people forever, for life. So it's more than a physical act. Dr. Stephen Arterburn writes this, sexual pleasure is one of the most intense human experiences. Physically speaking, when a man or woman reaches sexual excitement, nerve endings release a chemical into the brain called opioid. Opioid means opium-like and is a good description of the power of this chemical. Apart from a heroin-induced experience, nothing is more physically pleasurable than sex. This is a wonderful thing in a committed marriage relationship because it helps to bond two people together and bring joy to living together and building a relationship. Because sex creates such a strong physical and non-physical bond, it is reserved for the context of lifelong, committed, monogamous marriage. Now, when I was in college, I had several posters on my wall, posters of Pete Sampras, Michael Chang, Gary Payton of the old Seattle Supersonics. I had artwork on my walls. And every semester when the semester began, I would move into my room and I would put up all those posters. Now imagine that I used the same masking tape for all the posters. I put one up, uh, that's a bad spot, took it down, used the same tape, put up a different poster, pulled it down, and did that seven or eight times. What would happen to that masking tape after being used seven or eight times, nine times, ten times, it would eventually lose its bonding or sticking power. It's been used too much. In a similar sense, people that have multiple sexual partners across their lifetime lose that bonding ability. Does God forgive? Yes, God forgives. But there are consequences for sin. Therefore, we must fear God. God has designed sex to bond two people for life. 
since this bond is meant to be permanent, it's more than a physical act. This leads one author to ask some very important questions. He says this, if sex is just physical, why is rape so much more harmful to a woman than simply being beat up? Why is it that when a child is sexually abused, when they're an adult and connect the dots, it's so difficult to shake off? Why is adultery so devastating to a relationship? Why is it that men with the deepest sexual issues often had uninvolved or missing fathers? Why is it that most people's greatest regrets are often sexual? When somebody comes to me and says, Pastor, I have to tell you something I have never told anyone else. It's almost always sexual. Everything in our experience screams out that sex is not just physical. Something much greater is at work. Don't create this bond with someone unless you're willing to bond with them for life in the covenant of marriage. And every married couple knows the sexual bond is much stronger when every other area of their relationship is synced up. Husbands, don't expect to have great sex with your wife if you are not providing your wife with leadership, provision, and protection. And by leadership, I mean leading and nurturing and cherishing and leading in romance. There's a great book by C.J. Mahaney, you, you won't forget this title. It's called Sex, Romance, and the Glory of God. And the mantra of the book is, he's writing it to husbands, you can't touch her body until you touch her heart. And what he means by that is, husbands, you have to romance, cherish, and serve your wife not to get sex, but because you love her. And when you do that, your sex life will be much better. God created sex for procreation, for pleasure, for permanence. In addition, God created sex for protection. 1 Corinthians 7, 2 to 5. Again, the apostle Paul writes, because of the temptation to sexual immorality, each man should have his own wife and each woman her own husband. The husband should give to his wife her conjugal rights and likewise the wife to her husband. For the wife does not have authority over her own body, but the husband does. Likewise, the husband does not have authority over his own body, but the wife does. Do not deprive one another, except perhaps by agreement for a limited time that you may devote yourselves to prayer, but then come together again so that Satan may not tempt you because of your lack of self-control. Now this passage was revolutionary in the first century. Because the Apostle Paul is talking here about conjugal rights, and he says two things. He says, wives, don't deprive your husbands. But then he says, husbands, don't deprive your wives, implying that male and female are equal. The Apostle Paul was not a chauvinist. And again, this passage hit Corinth like a bombshell because he's implying equality in the sexual relationship. And he says, don't deprive each other sexually because if you do, your spouse may be tempted to go elsewhere. So the Apostle Paul is exhorting us, encouraging us to avoid sexual sin by working hard on the art of lovemaking in the context of our marriages. Now, husbands, don't use this text as a club to make your wife have sex with you. That's not Paul's intention at all here. 
At the same time, husbands and wives, remember that the Apostle Paul is saying, if your spouse wants to have sex, you should take up your cross and serve your spouse. Now, obviously, there's going to be times when this is not doable, based on all kinds of factors, seasons of life, physical exhaustion, hormones, medical issues. I get that. But what's the spirit of what Paul is saying? The spirit of what he's saying is husband and wife have lots of sex to help protect your spouse from sexual temptation. And there's something here I'll come back to about taking up our crosses and serving. That's the spirit of the passage here. This is not a suggestion. This is a command from God. The Apostle Paul, inspired by the Holy Spirit, is saying, spouse, don't deprive your spouse of sex. Now, while lack of sex in marriage is never, ever an excuse for sexual sin, one of the reasons a spouse may be tempted to stray sexually is because the other spouse is refusing to have sex with him or her. God created sex for procreation. God created sex for pleasure. God created sex for permanence. God created sex for protection. And God created sex for portraying. What does sex ultimately portray? Sex in the context of marriage is meant to be a portrayal of Christ's extravagant love for his bride, the church. Well, how do I get at that? Ephesians 5, 31 and 32. The Apostle Paul utters these words, Therefore a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. This mystery is profound, but I'm saying that it, that is marriage, sexuality, refers to Christ and the church. Marriage is a beautiful portrayal of Christ's love for his bride, the church. Sex in the context of marriage is a unique expression of self-giving and sacrifice and love for one's spouse. Therefore, one logical conclusion to deduce from this is that the intimacy and joy of marital sex is meant to point us to the far greater intimacy and joy that we experience in our relationship with God. Now, to be clear, there is nothing erotic or sexual about your relationship with God. That's not what I'm saying. But there is something profoundly intimate and joyful about sex, and our greatest experience of intimacy and joy comes from God. Tim Keller says this, sex is for fully committed relationships because it's a foretaste of the joy that comes from being in complete union with God through Christ. The most rapturous love between a man and a woman on earth is only a hint of what that is like. And the Bible often describes God's relationship to people as one of marital intimacy. Jeremiah 2, Ezekiel 16, Revelation 19, and many other texts. And again, to be clear, nothing erotic or sexual about your relationship with God. Nonetheless, the closeness and joy we experience in the most rapturous marital sex is a small foretaste of the closeness and joy we'll experience with the triune God for all eternity. Why did God create sex? 
God creates sex for procreation, pleasure, permanence, protection, and portraying. Since God created sex for his glory, Satan hates it and is hell-bent on destroying it, which brings us to the second point. So first, the creation of sex. Second, the destruction of sex. Contrary to popular belief, again, Satan hates sexuality. As a result, he wants to destroy sexuality, and he has all kinds of devices he utilizes to destroy sexuality. Well, like what? Let me list several. Adultery destroys sex. Exodus 20:14, Matthew 15, Romans 2, James 2. Adultery essentially says that Christ is unfaithful to his spouse, and that's a lie. In addition, polygamy and polyandry destroys sex. Polyandry says that one can have many lovers. The word poly there, many. Polygamy means that one can have multiple spouses. Both those things are unbiblical. But Dave, there's polygamy in the Bible. There is. (laughs) But every time there's polygamy in the Bible, it leads to all kinds of chaos and destruction. Polygamy is descriptive, not prescriptive. In the garden, God created Adam and Eve, not Adam and Eve and Liz. Adam and Eve. One man, one woman. That's very, very clear. And you mark my words, polygamy will be legalized. It's just a matter of time. That's the trajectory of our culture right now. Furthermore, pedophilia and incest destroy sex, Leviticus 18. Porn destroys sex. Right now, porn is one of the biggest destroyers of sex I can think of. And I'm going to preach a whole sermon on this in a few weeks. But let me say this for now. If you never, ever, ever want to experience sexual fulfillment, keep looking at porn. If you want to ruin your marriage, dishonor God and destroy your family, view porn. Porn will never, ever, ever satisfy you. It will leave you more enslaved and it will destroy your desire for your spouse. I mentioned this before, but I was talking to an attorney a while back and she said, she was a family attorney, that the number one cause of divorce in her practice was pornography porn. And guys and gals, there's help. And I will talk a lot more about that in a few weeks. In addition, homosexuality destroys sex. And again, I'll preach a whole sermon, two sermons on this coming up. For now, note this. Homosexuality is prohibited in at least six texts of the Bible. Whenever homosexuality is mentioned in the Bible, it's always, always, always mentioned as a sinful lifestyle, which is why for 2,000 years the church has condemned that lifestyle. And a lot more on that in a few weeks. Sin destroys sex. Maybe not your sin, but we live in a very broken, fallen world. When Adam and Eve sinned, all of creation was infected with the disease of sin. And for some of you, you can't enjoy sexuality because of medical issues or because you were sinned against as a child or because maybe you were raped or molested or something. We live in a broken world. And our sin 
um, absorbed creation often makes sexuality very, very challenging. Now, with that in mind, there's all kinds of hope for you, and I'll come back to that in a moment. But we live in a broken world. There's medical issues and all kinds of other issues that make sex difficult. Furthermore, fornication destroys sex. What is fornication? Fornication is very simply sex either before marriage or outside of the context of marriage. This is clearly prohibited in the Old Testament and the New Testament. In the Old Testament, the penalty for fornication was death. Exodus 22, Deuteronomy 22. The punishment has changed, but the moral standard has not. New Testament, 1 Corinthians 7, 9. But if they cannot exercise self-control, they should marry, for it is better to marry than to burn with passion. Paul tells couples very clearly that are having sex before marriage that they should get married to avoid that sin of fornication. Now, I belabor this point because I've had lots of young guys say to me, Dave, where does the Bible say fornication is wrong? In many places, by the way. The word sexual immorality, the word pornea in the New Testament, which we get the word pornography from, uh, whenever that word is used, it's referring to all the sexual sin in the Old Testament. Bestiality, homosexuality, incest, and fornication, and many other sins. Whenever the Apostle Paul says flee sexual immorality, he's including in that fornication. But Dave, we're going to get married at some point. I've heard that from several young men. And one of those guys, his engagement broke off about three weeks before they got married. I'm aware of three broken engagements. Don't count on, hopefully you'll get married, but that's no excuse to fornicate. Fornication is sin that separates us from God and has massive consequences. One scholar says this, numerous studies suggest that adults who waited to have sex until they were married experienced higher levels of satisfaction compared to those who engaged in sexual relations before marriage. According to the American Psychological Association's Journal of Family Psychology, a study of 2035 married couples found that those who waited for sex until marriage rated their relationship stability 22% higher their relationship satisfaction 20% higher, their sexual quality of their relationship 15% better, and communication 12% better than couples who engaged in sex before marriage. In addition, fornication leads to all kinds of consequences in this life. For instance, the massive STD crisis right now. It's massive. It's destroying young people's bodies and lives. One scholar says this, sexually transmitted diseases have hit crisis levels and are on the rise in America. According to new data from the Centers for Disease Control and Prevention, CDC, the data show that total chlamydia, gonorrhea, and syphilis cases hit an all-time high in 2017, with nearly 2.3 million cases reported to CDC, surpassing the total reported to CDC for 2016 by more than 200,000 cases. When you break God's law, Yes, there is forgiveness, but there are consequences. Therefore, you and I must fear God. He forgives, but there are consequences. Now, at this point, singles always want to know, well, how far is too far? How far can I go 
with my boyfriend or girlfriend? Great question. The Apostle Paul is glad you asked because he addresses this very clearly to young Timothy. Timothy was a young pastor who was single. And the Apostle Paul gives him these instructions. 1 Timothy 5, 1 and 2. Do not rebuke an older man, but encourage him as you would a father, younger men as brothers, older women as mothers, younger women as sisters, as sisters in all purity. Now men, would you stick your tongue in your sister's mouth? I hope not. Would you put your hands on your sister's private parts? I sure hope not. Well, Dave, that's being legalistic. No, it's not. The Apostle Paul is saying, Timothy, treat your sisters in Christ like sisters in Christ in all purity. In all purity. They're your sisters. So that's the standard. Until you're married, treat her like she's your sister in Christ. And if you're dating, please consider getting some accountability for physical boundaries. And guys, it's your responsibility to protect. As a godly man, your job is to provide leadership, provision, and protection, which means protecting her sexual purity. Protect it. You are the one who needs to initiate purity and put up boundaries, not your girlfriend or your fiancé. Guys, you must set the tone in this area. You're called to lead and protect. So yes, fornication destroys sex. Finally, loveless marriages destroy sex. When there's a marriage that is trapped in bitterness, unforgiveness, lack of care, lack of service, lack of romance and friendship, you will not have a great sex life. Husbands and wives, you must both take up your crosses, forgive, and serve. Now recently, tragically, we were all made very, very aware of the wildfires that wreaked havoc on Medical Lake and North Spokane, right up here. Hundreds of homes were destroyed, some lives were destroyed, property was destroyed. Fire can be incredibly destructive, incredibly destructive. But fire can also be a huge blessing. The Puritans used to say that sex is like fire. When sex is in a fireplace, it's wonderful. It provides heat and light and so many other things. But when sex is outside the fireplace, it can destroy homes and lives. In a similar sense, when sex is reserved for the context of monogamous marriage where husband and wife are committed to serving and forgiving each other, sex is wonderful. Outside that context, sex is like fire and it will destroy your life. Dave, does this mean that we're all doomed to a life of sexual frustration? No. There's incredible hope, which brings us to the third and final point. So first is the creation of sex. Second, the destruction of sex. And third is the redemption of sex. The gospel of Jesus Christ Praise God, redeems sexuality and redeems sexually broken people. How? Well, first and foremost, the gospel provides forgiveness through the life 
and death and resurrection of King Jesus, all of your sins can be forgiven. Every single one of them. All of that guilt for all your sexual sin, for all your sin, was placed on Jesus. He went to the the cross, suffered and died in your place. Therefore, there is zero wrath remaining for you. All your guilt has been removed. And here's the best part. The utterly astonishing aspect of Christianity, that forgiveness is yours free of charge. It's free. Now last week, I'm sure many of you were following Powerball. It was 1.6 billion, 1.7 billion. I'm not gonna ask you about tickets because we're in church. But I thought, It'd be nice to win $1.6 billion. I mean, am I the only one who thought that? Okay. Imagine having all that wealth. But how much more valuable is forgiveness of sins? And it's yours free of charge. It's free. All you have to do is repent. Say, God, forgive me. Change me. Cleanse me. The gospel provides forgiveness for all your sexual brokenness, all your fornication, adultery, same-sex attraction, all forgiven if you're a Christian. The gospel also provides cleansing. Some of you feel dirty because of sexual sin. The blood of Christ cleanses us from all the filth and stain of sin. Some of you feel shame. You feel tremendous shame for the things that you've done with your body, with others. On the cross, Jesus Christ took all of our guilt and all of our shame. Galatians 3, 10 to 14 makes that very, very clear. He was cursed. He took our shame upon himself and suffered and died. Now with that said, sometimes there is need for ongoing counseling. There is significant brokenness in this room And you may be thinking, I understand that I'm forgiven, but I'm still not experiencing a satisfying sex life with my spouse. You may need counseling from our skilled counseling team. There may may need to be some books that you read. Again, there are consequences for sins. And it sometimes takes a while to work through applying the gospel to that particular situation. The gospel also reminds us that vindication is coming. Some of you have been grossly sinned against, molested, raped, or something else. Someday Christ will return and make all things right. He will execute perfect justice. And those that sinned against you will either have their sins forgiven by Christ or will spend all eternity separated from Christ, experiencing the justice that they deserve. And the gospel also provides power to overcome sin, even sexual sin. Sometimes it feels like we just can't say no because it feels so right to say yes. But because Jesus came to earth, suffered and died, the power of sin has been decisively broken in you. Romans 6, on the cross you died with Jesus and because you died with Jesus, your old self was crucified with Jesus, which means you are no longer enslaved to sin no matter how you feel. God has given you everything you need because of the gospel to overcome sexual sin, to overcome temptation, 
He's given you every resource necessary to honor him with your sexuality if you're a Christian. He's given us power to battle evil thoughts. Referring to sexual temptation, Martin Luther said this, you can't stop birds from flying over your head, but you can stop them from making a nest in your hair. What he meant by that is, we can't often stop sexual thoughts from coming into our brain, but we don't have to meditate on them. And it almost always starts in our brain. And when sexual temptation comes, by the power of the Holy Spirit, you can put that to death, especially if you have appropriate scriptures memorized. For instance, guys, Romans 5, 27 to 30, Jesus says, if you're right, referring to sexual sin, if your right hand causes you to sin, do what? Cut it off. If your left eye causes you to sin, do what? Gouge it out. For it is better for you to enter heaven maimed than to go to hell for all eternity. That's the paraphrase. So when you're struggling with sexual temptation, memorize scripture. It will help. Singles and married couples, it is possible to say no to sexual sin. God has given you everything you need to say no. The gospel also motivates us married couples, to serve our spouses sexually. Remember, in the gospel, Jesus Christ served us extravagantly, went to the cross on our behalf, died to himself, served us and served us and served us. In 1 Corinthians 7, Paul exhorts us to serve our spouses sexually. Tim Keller says this, each partner in marriage is to be most concerned not with getting sexual pleasure, but with giving sexual pleasure. Pleasure. Now, one partner in the marriage often wants sex more than the other partner. But if the main goal is serving the other, that'll resolve itself. And again, husbands, if you're not leading her and serving her romantically, if you're not cultivating friendship with her, it's going to be difficult to connect with her sexually. You must work hard at conversing with her, cherishing her, loving her. Not to have sex with her, but because you love her and you want to serve her. Husbands and wives can serve the other by backing off at times. Husbands, back off at times. Wives, make yourselves available to your husbands more often. Again, if both are serving the other, it works out. Husbands, don't do anything sexually that violates your conscience or your wife's conscience. If you're not willing to serve your spouse sexually, you're not applying the gospel to this critical area of your life. Finally, the gospel provides us with incredible joy. Sex is not the ultimate joy. How do we know? There'll be no sex in heaven. The best marriages are pointers to the deep, infinitely fulfilling, and final union you and I will have with the triune God for all eternity. In the moment of sexual temptation, we must remind ourselves that we will not be truly satisfied if we give in to that temptation. Our hearts were made for so much more. We were made to find all of our deepest joy and satisfaction and delight in the triune God through the ordinary means of grace. Bible reading, 
fellowship, prayer, coming to church, observing the sacraments. This means that you can remain a virgin your whole life and still be a very, very joyful, satisfied person because your joy and satisfaction is rooted ultimately in the triune God. Well, our culture says that sex is nothing and sex is everything. What does the Bible say? Sex was created by God. Sex was destroyed by the devil. And sex is redeemed by the gospel. Sex is something. It's a gift from God, but it's not everything. Relationship with the triune God is everything. Since relationship with the triune God, not sex, is our ultimate source of joy and eternal satisfaction. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you for creating sex. We thank you for giving us sex as a gift. Father, I pray this morning that you would help this church honor you with our sexuality. And Father, I pray that any who need counseling, any who need medical help would seek it. I pray that people would be willing to come to the pastoral staff and admit they have problems and get the help they need. Father, we thank you that you forgive and you forgive and you forgive through the shed blood of Jesus Christ. And we pray these things in his name. Amen.